Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gills Talk. Today, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Brooke Flamang. She is the lab director for the Fluid Locomotion Laboratory at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, where she is looking at functional morphology, comparative biomechanics, fluid dynamics, and looking at bio-inspired robots of sharks and fish. Brooke explains her research much better than I do, so I'm not going to dig too deep into what she does, and I think we should just start the interview right away this week. So let's kick it off with our interview with Dr. Brooke Flamang. Welcome, everyone, to another Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Dr. Brooke Flamang, so welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited to interview you. I'm pretty familiar with your work, being able to listen to you with the Gills Club Symposium a few years ago. So I'm really excited for the rest of the listeners to be able to hear about your work and what you do. So to kick off the interview, how about you explain? What do you do? I'm really interested in how fishes, including sharks, swim. And so my work focuses on understanding um, the anatomy, the bodies of the fishes, and what sort of specialties they might have in the way their fins are designed, the way their scales are, um, what other aspects of their body make them really good swimmers. And so uh, this is as far as a field goes, it would be called biomechanics. So I'm interested in understanding sort of the physics of um, and the math and other sciences, how they affect the biology of fishes being able to move. It's very interesting. We had a couple scientists before you that really focus on general biology or tagging and tracking, but really no one that's looking at the biomechanics of these things. So I'm really interested to be able to kind of deep dive into more about what you do and how you really got into this. So what made you want to go into that? Well, it's kind of funny because I didn't even know that this existed as an opportunity when I was in college. And it's really not something that you can get a degree in. My degree is still in biology. Uh, What it is, is that you use a lot of integrating other fields and other sciences, um, either through learning new skills or collaborating with with other scientists in other fields in order to to apply a lot of different techniques to understanding the biology of how fishes swim. So, um, for example, some of the stuff that we'll do is we will look at fishes swimming in the wild. We will also bring them into the lab. And I have what's called a flow tank or a flume, and it's basically like a treadmill for fish. So it allows us to control the speed of the water, which this, um, you know, sharks will, or all fishes will change the speed at which they're swimming. We can use high-speed video to uh, look at how the fishes are moving and the sharks are moving. And then we can also use a technique where we have tiny little particles in the water that we light up with lasers and we record the video of that. And then we track those particles And that allows us to understand the fluid dynamics of how the sharks are swimming in the water um, and look at the forces that they're generating when they're swimming. Really exciting. Um, I always think when you just said, like, we do the laser beams, I go back to Austin Powers, like, sharks with laser beams. (laughs) Well, it, it gets even more nerdy than that because we also use robots. So we'll also create robots that are inspired by the biology of these uh, organisms in order to be able to uh, manipulate them in ways that, you know, the fishes may not swim in order to understand maybe why sharks don't swim in a certain way. Or so if we want to try to understand the mechanisms about how uh, they control their fins, particularly with sharks, they control the stiffness of their fins. And so we can use a robotic inspired model in order to, to play around with that and try and address some of those questions. Wait, I never knew that sharks can control the stiffness of their fins. They can. In fact, 
So I accidentally discovered um, that sharks have a muscle in their tail that allows them to change the stiffness of their fins. And in doing that, when they do that, they provide additional thrust for their swimming that we don't see in other bony fishes with their flexible fins. And so it makes them really fantastic swimmers. They swim continuously producing thrust in that way. So interesting. Can you deep dive? How do you accidentally discover that? (laughs) So going back to where I didn't even know that, you know, biomechanics was a thing. My master's degree, I was studying the reproductive ecology of deep sea cat sharks, which was awesome and exciting. Um, But I also started reading some other literature and taking some other courses and learning more about this, this whole field of studying the physics of biology and swimming. And so I took a summer course at Friday Harbor Labs, University of Washington on fish biomechanics to try and have like a boot camp session to to learn more about this. And while I was there, we had um, caught some dogfish and they were doing starting off the course with um, this sort of like kicking off anatomy type dissection thing. Now, I had dissected, you know, thousands and that's not even hyperbolic. I had literally thousands in the course of my master's degree of sharks. And I felt fairly comfortable with the shark dissection. And if you look at any uh, textbook for dissecting animals in the, in the shark section, they focus on the head muscles and jaw um, because that's the interesting bitey parts, right? And then the only body muscles they might show is a little bit of the side flank section to show you how fish have these um, cone-shaped myomeres for swimming. And that's it. And so I did those relatively quickly because I was really familiar with those and we everybody was still dissecting. So I got curious and bored, which is an exciting combination as a scientist and just dissected the rest of the shark, right? Fins and everything. So when I got down to the the tail fin, the caudal fin, there was this bright red muscle and it wasn't listed anywhere. And so I called over some of the professors leading the course who are hands down the, the world's some greatest morphologists known. Nobody knew what this was. And the funny thing is, is I mean, dogfish, we've been dissecting as a lab animal for like a hundred years and nobody saw this. And in retrospect, you can actually see it through the skin. It's that red of a muscle, right? So the skin is very thin in the tail. And so then I spent uh, the rest of that class trying to figure out when it was active. So we use a technique called electromyography where um, we'll put the fish uh, to sleep temporarily. And we, we make these little electrodes that are the same thickness of your hair, super, super fine wires. And we'll insert them surgically into the muscle. And then after the shark has a chance to revive and relax um, and they can't feel them when they're swimming, they swim normally after that. But what that tells us is as they're swimming, Every time the muscle contracts, your muscles use a little bit of electricity and those wires pick up that electricity. And so we can see every time the muscle is active on our screen, just the same way you can see um, in the hospital and EKG when the heart is beating, same sort of idea. We can watch the muscle activity as the fish is swimming. So we combine that with high-speed video and we can match those two up. So I was able to see when during swimming the shark was using its tail muscles. And so then fast forward to... I continued working on this for my PhD, uh, and I was able to combine that with these fluid dynamic studies and see that every time they hit the point in the tail beat where the muscle contracted, it released this extra sort of jet of fluid, which looks like a vortex or sort of a flying donut or smoke ring or thing, something like that in the water. Um, and so you'd be able to, to visualize that that was happening when the tail was moving. What was going on is by contracting those muscles, it was Um, tightening all the fibers in the skin and allowing the tail to change stiffness. That is 
sorry, I'm just going to mind blown. (laughs) It's so interesting just by being able to be a little more curious and literally deep dive into something that you've done a thousand times and being able just to, "Ah, I'm bored. I'm just going to go and do this. You discovered something completely new and being able to do a whole research project around it. And so much of science in general, at least in my, my experiences, almost all the work I've done has been sitting there looking at something that people have looked at and just going, hmm, that's, that seems different or that seems interesting or why does it work that way, you know? And, and just that curiosity and sort of not assuming that either A, everybody already knows about it or which you can find out from literature searches of previously done research um, or not assuming that it's, it's something that's totally commonplace and well understood. And so I think that, you know, it's just being curious and asking questions can get you really, really far. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one key thing already to take away is just be curious. Yeah. Never know what you're going to find. So would you say though, that is your biggest like aha discovery moment so far within your career or do you even uh-huh. have cooler than that? Um, it's, it's one of them. I have a few other ones that are um, not especially shark related, but uh, you know, we we discovered that this fish in Thailand um, is able to walk like a salamander and uses, it, it looks very much like a regular fishy fish, but um, it has internally a, a pelvis, a bone connecting its um, its hind fins to its vertebral which believe it or not, sharks and other fishes don't have. Those hind fins are just kind of hanging attached to the muscles because they don't need to push against anything. But mm-hmm. um, in these fishes, they can they can walk like a salamander. And that was wild and exciting to find out. And then a lot of other work I do, which sort of relates to sharks, um, is studying remoras and how they're able to attach to things, including sharks. And so a lot of the discoveries with with that particular fish have just been in doing some closer dissections and looking a little bit more closely at things that people hadn't hadn't before. Really cool, really cool work. But I think with everything that you've been going and talking about so far, I can just imagine the line of challenges that you might face and being able, I mean, sharks and laser beams, putting in really like, like hair thin you uh, electrodes am I saying yep. that yeah yep. in in into a shark I mean I can just imagine the challenges that you might face is doing those things so what are some of those challenges yeah I, definitely it's it can be tricky I mean part of it is being fortunate enough to have the resources to do the kind of work that I want to do so you know being able to get professor position where I had access to things like flow tanks and being able to get the laser systems I wanted and everything was was really important um, career-wise for that. Um, you know, it's always tricky to write grants. And so that's that's a big part of it too, is to have the funding and, um, and, and to bring in the students to help work on some of these really exciting things. But then skill-wise, it's hard to learn a lot of these things that you wouldn't normally think necessarily relate to your work. Personally, for me, I got really lucky that I had a nonlinear path. You know, it was never my plan to go in sort of the directions that I I have, but it's all worked out. And what I mean by that is, so when I applied to master's programs and I I didn't get in right away, I'm tenac. I have a really high tenacity in setting up, very tenacious. Um, so I went, I, I crashed graduate school. So I I didn't get into some master's programs, partly because my undergraduate was, didn't give me a lot of research experience. And so I was trying to gain research experiences. And so I decided that there was a program that I really wanted to attend at Moss Landing in California. Um, And so I uh, transferred, I was working as a paramedic at the time in order to have a paycheck. And I transferred 
cross country and just started taking classes. And then they decided that I wasn't going away and I'd already started my thesis. So they might as well accept me into the program anyway. But in the meantime of doing that and working as a paramedic and to support myself through grad school, I learned a lot of surgical techniques. And so um, I was able to very quickly do things like insert electrodes in fish, which is much easier than, say, starting an IV in somebody who is worried about it. You know, so um, it actually ended up it's, it's funny, the sort of the skills that you can gain along the way, you know, just in, in whatever life sort of got you to where you're going. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting how just everything connects in some way that, I mean, if you would ask someone just wa- walking down the street, how does a paramedic and a shark scientist fit? Like it doesn't. <laughs> so it's so in- interesting that even though you don't have that linear path, but your path still led you and gave you that experience to where you are currently. So yeah. very interesting. But when you are talking about different things like, like you said, you went to be a paramedic first to pay your way through grad school, you know, this path isn't linear, but is this some, is there things that you didn't really expect along the way of becoming a scientist and being in this field? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that I didn't expect was I, I, you know, coming through high school and undergraduate education thought that as a scientist, like you ask the question, they make it very clean and tidy. Like you pose a hypothesis, you set up an experiment, you do the experiment, it gives you an answer. You know, write it, send it, submit it, done. Every question I ask, even before I've answered it, I've got like five more questions. So (laughs) I feel like, you know, you never entirely answer anything because the more you learn about something and the more you learn about how that thing relates to other things, then you just have a million more questions. So it's not like a clean, neat, tidy package where you like, you just do the thing and then you're done. And then you have to come up with another thing. There's just, it keeps growing exponentially. I didn't know that at the time, but I love it. I love that part about it. It just keeps everything so exciting. Mm -hmm. Is there a question that maybe you have had from a research project that you haven't been able to pursue yet? And you're like, I want to get to that question someday. Yeah. I mean, all of my questions are fall under one question, which is just why are fish (laughs) like, (laughs) they? you know, um, why are there so many? Why do they all do slightly different things? Why, you know, why is there so much variation in morphology and how do these even subtle variations allow them to do such incredibly different things in completely different parts of the ocean, you know, in close spaces or open pelagic spaces or really deep or close to the surface. And, you know, there's all these sorts of things that you have to think about that, you know, the diversity of habitats in which they live is actually really difficult to do all these things well. Right. So uh, it's really, really interesting. And to think about, you know, how evolution sort of favored performance over time to be able to do some things better than other things, what the trade offs are on those. So those are those are some some really just big questions, I think, apply to most of the stuff that I do. Mm -hmm. Is there a species that you wish to work with one day that you haven't been able to yet? Oh, um, so I'd like to do uh, more work with whale sharks. Back when I was trying to gain experience, I had the fortunate experience of being once in the water with a whale shark, but I didn't get very much time in doing that. And I would love to be able to do that. And part of that is um, with the project that we're working on and studying remoras, which attach to so many different things. When they attach, they don't harm the animals. So right now, if somebody is going to be studying Um, large organisms, especially migratory ones in the ocean, they try to attach a tag to it to both track the health of the animal and where it's going 
And so those tags are attached in a couple different ways, one of which is with suction cups, which can fall off kind of right away within 24 hours. And the other one is to either um, poke something through the skin, um, which over the long term is not always the best for the animal. And so what I'm hoping to do is to create a tag with based off the remora, um, and we've got pretty good headway on this so far, that will allow for attachment more on the order of weeks to months, and so not cause any skin dish, uh, or tissue damage to, to the animal. And so whale sharks is one of, um, I have a group of collaborators we've recently started working with um, that are hoping to, to use these tags in the, in the future. That's so incredible. I, to be able then to use something that we can just learn from in our general environment and that evolutionary, you know, just evolution, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and to be able to take, take that and apply that to be able to learn more about all our big moving species in our oceans. It's, oh, I can't wait to see, hear more about that once you are able to fine tune it and be able to see how it all works. Yeah, I'm really excited about so far our prototype just is working really great and we're hoping within the next year or so we have collaborators who are already interested who work on white sharks, tiger sharks, whale sharks, mantas. Um, and so these are, you know, all big species of interest that I think if we could find a non-invasive way to, to follow them, that would be really, really great. Yeah, that sounds awesome. With everything that you've been saying, you know, you have lots of different collaborators that you, you work with outside of your university and then um, with also within, but who's your best resource that hmm. you, or may, maybe there's multiple that you work with, that you go, that you go to. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the collaborators are huge and the members of my lab are huge because one of the best things we can do is just talk about things. There really are no bad questions, right? And the likelihood of you being the first to ask the question or at least kind of think about it, I mean, you might be the first to verbalize it, but there's probably somebody else who was like, oh yeah, you're right, that is weird. And why, why didn't we talk about this before? So it's, it, there's, don't be afraid of asking questions. Just, you know, there really are no, no bad questions. And so having the chance to sort of, throw things out there and, and, you know, bring together knowledge that other people might have on a situation is, I think, in itself, one of the most valuable things. Absolutely. Um, to wrap up our interview, though, today, I would love to hear advice that you would give to your younger self. So for me, I think the biggest piece of advice, so I was, I'm a first-gen college student, and so I psyched myself out of applying to some of the bigger programs, which I think was a mistake, because I, even though I was at the top of my class in high school, for some reason, I didn't apply to things that would have given me more research opportunities. And so I ended up going with the, the university um, that gave me the full ride, but um, didn't, you know, offer a lot of research, which in hindsight, and had I had, you know, people in my life who were familiar with academics and science and things, they could have given me different advice, but I didn't have that. So I wish I had, it, you know, if I could have told myself anything, it was to give more information about what, what's, what you need knowing if you want to go into science and research, you know, that finding a way to get experience in those things is going to be really, really huge, even in early stages. So don't be afraid trying new things, you know, I mean, the worst thing you can get is no, and it might sting a little, but you're going to get a yes, you know, just keep at it. Yeah, I think that is great advice to end on. So for anyone that wants to maybe follow you or your research, are there any social media or websites that they can reach out to to be able to follow your work? 
Yeah, we're on Twitter at Fleming Lab. Um, and then my students um, that are all working on projects in the lab too, we retweet each other. So, and uh, we also have a website. If you Google um, Fleming and NGIT, you'll find our lab website and everybody is there as well. We're pretty easy to find. We're, we're out there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was fascinating. I'm so interested to be able to hear more about your work as you're able to learn more about these these new tags and more about swimming. So I'm very excited to see what your future holds. Awesome. Thank you. This was very fun. And yeah, I'm, I know there's many more awesome shark scientists out there in the making. I hope they hear this and I hope they get motivated to, to try new and amazing things. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Dr. Brooke Flamang. Again, if you would like to keep up with her and her lab's work, you can follow them on Twitter at the Flamang Lab which is F-L-A-M-M-A-N-G-L-A-B. If you would like to keep up to date with Gills Talk and anything Gills Club related, you can follow us on all our social media sites just by following the Gills Club. For now, remember to keep exploring, keep learning, and always stay curious because you never know what you are going to find. See you all on the next episode.